everybody. Uh, well, let's start with a prayer, shall we? In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Spirit, as we get prepared in this next couple of weeks for Pentecost and for your coming again, we ask that you would just breathe into us tonight, breathe into our hearts, breathe into our lives, and set us on fire for you. We ask especially today at the feast day of St. Joan of Arc that we would be filled with courage and with zeal, that we would be able to listen to your word, Lord, and that we would be able to bring it forth into the world. I ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I want to talk about a couple of things. Obviously, you're doing a series on community here. And so I want to talk about a few things. First thing we're going to start with is Catholic imagination. And then I'm going to use some personal experiences to sort of define that uh, a little bit. And then I want to talk about something way in the beginning, very old. And then we'll talk about something way right now, very new. So let's start with this idea of Catholic imagination. And you'll soon know why I'm talking about this. Catholic imagination is this term that can be used in a lot of different ways. It's the reason that we can have uh, the Lord of the Rings and be able to understand that there's something sacramental in there. It's the reason Flannery O'Connor can talk about somebody being shot at the side of the road and we can read it as a Catholic short story. It's the reason that when we walk into the Sistine Chapel, we just can't breathe because we're so overwhelmed by beauty. It's the reason that we can watch a Terrence Malick film three or four times before we have any idea what it's about and still say there's something else in there beyond the story. The Catholic imagination is not saccharine, right? It's not predictable. It's not sort of the, the films that come out that we say, oh, that was a really feel-good movie. I mean, it really is more Graham Greene, and it really is more, like I said, Flannery and people being shot by the side of the road. The Catholic imagination is messy. But one of the things that we can also talk about with the Catholic imagination is this idea that things in the world are sacramental that the world around us is sacramental, and that the world as a sacrament is iconic. So that means that when we look at things in the world, we can see beyond them, sort of through them. So I would say imagine an icon, like, um, like a, an Orthodox, an Eastern Rite icon, um, and in the East, the churches believe that when you look at an icon, you don't look at it, you look through it right? It's something that's physical and in front of you, and it's got borders to it, but it brings us to something much bigger. So in that kind of cultural approach to icons, an icon is something that represents something much greater. If we want to go to a very modern example, right, if you look at your phone screen, there are all these little icons on there, right? And so if you see this pink camera thing, you know that's Instagram. And the pink camera thing itself is not Instagram. The pink camera thing itself is an icon. And you sort of have to push on it because it brings us through to a place that's much, much bigger, that connects us to so much more in the world, right? And so they've used the word icon same word, um, in the same way. And so 
I would suggest that one of the things that the Catholic imagination allows us to do is to experience the world in sort of this iconic way, what Catholics would call a sacramental way, where the things themselves point us to something much bigger. Now, that can be these huge profound things, right? Like actual sacraments in the church. So if you were to go to a baptism and you were to see a child having water poured on their head, you would say, oh, well, that's a symbol that not only is this child fully, you know, becoming part of this community called the church, but the water itself is this icon, right? There's a reason we use water, because water symbolizes so many other things. Water has to do with purity and life and these kinds of things, right? So this brings me to my next sort of piece as an example that's personal. And if you're not a geek like I am, just hang in there with me, okay? So I'm as old as most of your moms, I realize that. Um, I also am a gamer. So I play this thing called Elder Scrolls Online. And it takes up way too much of my time. And as I was writing my dissertation and really needed a break from all the really heady, heavy stuff in my brain, um, it gave me a place to escape, but not be just sort of passive, right? Like TV, you just get stuff coming at you. Um, and I enjoy this. I enjoy this platform because I'm playing this game with people from all over the world, particularly all over the North America. Um, but I can also play by myself. My husband, who is here somewhere, I don't know, he moved, he's back there somewhere. Anyway, there he is. Um, he plays too, so we play very differently. He um, kind of ticks me off when he says that he fights better than I do. Um, it's one of these role-playing game things, right? And I know, this is really, some of you just, this is weird, and some of you are very happy and could know way more than I do. Um, but still, I play with what they call pets. So I am this character, I have this avatar, and my avatar has three different other bodies that come to its aid. Let's put it that way. So I can go into a dangerous place, and I can wipe out all the bad guys pretty quickly because there are four of us when I play by myself. Okay? And so it was occurring to me one day, um, and actually I think my husband Mike said this to me, he said, well, you always play in a group. Like, when you go to dangerous places, you usually try to find other players to play with you, and everyone kind of has the thing they do best, and then it takes out the bad guys. He said, but you're already a group by yourself. And I thought, yeah, that's right. I am. I, I'm a group. I'm a group by myself. I have somebody who can, you know, just go in there and get beaten on without getting hurt, and I've got somebody who can heal everybody, and I've got somebody who can just um, sort of do damage, and they all protect me, and I protect them, and, and this is just, just imagine we're geeky people who do these things, right? But there are always four of us when there's one of me. And I thought, well, you know, when we're talking about community, I think that through using my Catholic imagination, I can look at my experience playing this game and see what community might be. Right? Now, it's a little weird, right? Because it's really just me. It feels like four of us, but it's not. It's really just me. Um, but that said, I surround myself with other people <laughs> um, in order to be protected, in order to meet my goals, in order to um, work cooperatively. And then when I meet other people, actual other human 
bodies that are virtually playing in this game. And they have the same thing. There could be 12 of us and three real people, but there could be 12 of us and we're playing and we can damage things faster and do things better and get to the end goal much more quickly, right? And so I have this regular, odd virtual experience of being, again, in a virtual community and understanding that because everybody brings whatever their strengths are to that community in that situation, we can achieve our goal. And I think in a lot of ways, this is like the Christian life, right? And it's not that any of these characters sort of complete my character. It's that everybody knows what their job is and everybody contributes and then we can reach whatever our common goal is. So to me, the Catholic imagination applied to video games, um, you, you probably didn't suspect we were talking about this tonight, especially when you saw me, but that's okay. You never know who's behind that character. Um, but, you know, there is something to be said for surrounding yourself in community and for sort of playing these games in, for, in community and sort of setting up yourself for success in community. Okay. So my husband's character that plays alone dies fast. He fights better, but he dies faster, right? So this is the point. So one of the things that I really do want to do, though, is not just stay in this weird geek world, especially for those of you who are looking at me sideways, um, which is fine. I totally appreciate that. I, um, I have been fascinated with the Catholic imagination since I was a young child. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I like the whole fantasy sci-fi world. But I don't like all this stuff because it helps me escape. Sometimes I need to escape, and it can be an escape. But honestly... What really does it is that these are things that help me look beyond. These are things that help me understand that this isn't it. This is great. Especially this, right? Especially the fact that we've got all these people here saying, hey, I want to drink beer together and eat pizza together and spend my Thursday night just being with other folks and learning and growing and challenging and feeling comfortable in my own skin because faith is something that we want to make really quiet and private and I can't talk about it anywhere else. And God, I really want to talk about it, right? So this is great, but this is only an icon. This is only something that points us to something much bigger. I'm going to return to that, but I'd like to go way back into the past, into what John Paul II calls the primordial times, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit of Bible here. I'm not a biblical scholar. <clears throat> I did just complete a dissertation on what we call theological anthropology. I'm going to talk a little bit about theological anthropology. Don't run away. It's fine. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Adam and Eve. I'm going to talk a little bit about Adam and Eve, and particularly Genesis 2. So uh, just by show of hands, who knew there were two different creation stories in Genesis? Oh, wow, we have a very knowledgeable audience. Okay, that was awesome. A couple of people were like, what the heck are you talking about? And that's awesome. I really love that, especially when you're like, I have lived for 20 years and been like Bible literate and, you know, whatever. But there are two different stories. And the first story, the first narrative is in Genesis 1, and that's where we see that the man and woman are created together. There's no time difference. There's no this happens and then that happens. But Genesis 2 is different, and um, John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, which, by the way, I'm going to say it once loud and proud, so listen. 
the theology of the body is not the chastity teaching of the church. It can be used to support the chastity teaching of the church. In written form, it is 850 pages. It was given in talks over five years, and there are 133 different audiences. So I'm going to encourage all of you, if you remember nothing else tonight, for my sake and for the love of God and for the love of John Paul II, it's so much bigger than that, right? Um, but what I do want to say is that this beginning of this of these talks talks about a lot about Genesis 2 and what it meant that the man was created alone, right? And so John Paul II calls this original solitude. So at the beginning of the world, um, you know, all these things are created, and then God creates the man, the Adam, and he puts him on the earth. And, you know, there's this really fascinating piece that we also tend to not pay attention to, which is, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, and he looked on his creation and said it was good. And then God created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and looked at his creation and said it was good. And then God created the, the plants and the broccoli and the rhinoceroses and looked at his God's creation and said it was good. And then... God creates the human being, right? This man. And, and he, you know, the man is created in the image of God. This is, this is, this is not the flea. This is not the, the cauliflower. This is man, right? This is a complex cr creature that's created in God's image and likeness. But the man is alone, right? The man is alone and God says, and it's the only time in this whole beautiful rhetorical sort of poetic back and forth, this got created and it was good and this got created and it was good. And God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's the first time we hear that there's something in creation that's not good. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, John Paul II is really interesting on this, okay, because he starts to talk about almost like we don't have a timetable, but almost as if there's time between the man's creation and the woman's creation when God said it's not good for the man to be alone. But in the meanwhile, God is telling this man, hey, here's all these fruits and vegetables, and this is the soil, and you are a cultivator. I want you to have authority to cultivate the land. And so the man learns something. Oh, oh, part of being created by God and made in God's image is that I have authority. Awesome. And so he begins to cultivate the land, right? No one told the rhinos to cultivate the land. So then the next thing, of course, is that God says, well, there's all these animals, right? And um, you get to name them. And part of naming means responsibility, right? And so the man learns, oh, oh, as a human person, I have responsibility for these animals and to name the animals. And by the way, if you've heard Pope Francis throwing around this whole integral ecology thing lately, this is what he's talking about, yeah? So the man does that. So he's learning about himself, but all of this is sort of a a preamble to the creation of woman, right? It's not without its cost. It's not without the man feeling this, this longing in him for, and as the scripture says, one like himself. 
one like himself. And so then the third thing that happens, God says, oh, here's this tree. You can eat everything. You can eat from all the plants. You can eat, you know, kumquats and, and, you know, you can eat leeks and you can eat kale. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can. And then, you know, but you can eat everything, but not that tree because that tree could lead to your death. And so free will enters the world, right? So now the person, the human person, understands themselves to have authority, responsibility, and free will. So this is a really different scenario. And all of this leads up to the creation of the woman because still, still, the man is not satisfied. He's still longing. I mean, he's got every puppy you could want, right? He's got God walking in the garden, but he's not a puppy and he's not God. And just, he's craving community. He's craving community. And I want to say this in the broadest term, right? This isn't just, oh, he wants a wife, you know? Like, that's great. We can talk about that all day long, right? But it's bigger than that because this is part of the, the basic characteristics of what it means to be human. From the very beginning, from before time, this is a primordial condition of the human person, according to John Paul II's read of the scriptures. And I kind of agree with this one. So... On top of that, we get to the um, Genesis 2, 23 to 25. And God puts Adam into this deep sleep. And, you know, I, I kind of love this because John Paul II does this thing where he says, hey, by the way, this is such a deep sleep that this man isn't even dreaming, like completely unconscious. So he can never take any responsibility or claim, oh, yeah, God and I, we made the woman together. That just doesn't happen, right? He's in such a deep sleep that he actually wakes up as two people. And then the woman's there, and he sees her, and he doesn't say, well, she's hot. He doesn't say, oh, good, I have somebody to, you know clean my laundry, right? He says, this one, at last. I mean, I think he uses way stronger expletives than that. I do. But I'm not going to say them here. I don't want to offend you. But I'm from Jersey, so we kind of go there, right? But I think he's just like, oh, what? And he says, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And John Paul II does this amazing thing where he says, that's not... That's not redundant, right? It can feel like, well, why is why does he have to say both things? He's just a poet. Like, what's going on here, right? No, 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 no. It's not about that at all, right? He says, she's bone of my bone, which is sort of a shorthand to say we share the same skeletal structure. We have the same bones. We're made out of the same stuff. We're constructed the same way, however your brain wants to put that. But then she's flesh of my flesh because he recognizes that her flesh and his flesh, while the same stuff, all you biologists out there, right, is different. She looks different. She looks a lot different. Right? And this is before sin and fig leaves and clothes and Jordache jeans and like whatever. This is before all that, right? So they can really see each other. 
Now, here's the point that I'd really like to get out of this, other than all the other good points that you've probably heard from whatever holy people you've been listening to and priests and stuff. He doesn't see her as other. He sees her as another I. He sees her as different, and he sees her as one with whom he can be united. And this is what community means, right? It means shared unity. It means coming together in a united way. But our original human model of what community looks like are people that are physically quite different from one another and probably mentally and emotionally quite different from one another. Why do I know that? Because the woman, John Paul II says, is created as a person for her own sake. She has a complete personhood and the man has a complete personhood, right? They don't complete each other. They're not halves of a whole. This is not platonic here, right? They're not halves, they're wholes. So it's a really different way to think about this sort of original humanity. To think about the fact that difference from the beginning is not just good, but it's actually the thing that changes God's assessment of creation, which in its, the aloneness of man is not good. And now with the woman there, it is good. Creation is good. And so man and woman together in this instance make up the fullness of creation. And the reason that I sort of bring up this completeness thing is because I don't want us to think that I'm talking about marriage, right? I'm talking about personhood. I'm talking about being created as a human person, right? Marital, celibate, single, vocation, all that is added to this, right? It's added to this. This is before all of that. As a matter of fact, John Paul II does this really cool thing. Here's a big word. He, said, he uses this phrase somatic homogeneity. He says the man and the woman, before we even talk about maleness and femaleness, have bodies, right? They're like each other even before we even get to that, right? So this is, this is all the theology stuff and um. I geek out on this too, right? So this is part of the thing. But I want us just to imagine that when we hear these narratives about scripture and about, you know, gazillions of years ago and about this idea of a first man and this idea of a first woman and this idea of creation, I want us to hear the really important stuff. I want us to hear the longing, the desire, the not goodness of solitude that's just aloneness. Now, does this mean no one gets to like go read a book in a corner and tell everybody to buzz off for a while? No, that's not what I'm saying at all, right? We have mystics and monks and hermits and all these kind of things in our tradition who have been called or who have a natural propensity to these things. We are, I'm an introvert, so, you know, introverts unite. When we need to, like, go home and just say, love you all, I need three hours, right? I can't do this anymore, and that's fine. But <clears throat> what I am saying is that we know from the beginning we've got this model of what it means to be in communion and community. And this model can serve us now and into the future. 
Remember, we got here from playing Elder Scrolls Online. But um, really, it is about this idea uh, that difference is good. And I would suggest that difference is the place of holiness. What do I mean by that? Well, holiness is not this thing that somehow a lot of us have been sort of duped into thinking it is, where people, you know, just pray the rosary all the time and listen to, like, all Jesus radio all the time. Like, those can be really beautiful, good things, right? But in and of themselves, they're not holy, right? In and of themselves, these aren't holy acts. Because holiness, actually, if we look at the lives of the saints, usually means getting into kind of the shit of things, right? It really means getting into the mess and being in that mess and being willing to still work and unite and, and um, seek virtue and persevere in the mess, right? So when you go through some really difficult thing in your life, and I hope none of you do, but most of us will, one of the worst things you can say to somebody or hear from somebody is, oh, it's going to be fine, it's God's will. Yeah, of course. I mean, God's like God, right? So, but did you chat with him? Like, did God come down and say, like, oh, yeah, just remind them when they're kind of wallowing in the shit of life, right? That, that you know, it's all in God's will, you'll be good. Because sometimes we get this, like, shiny, happy people thing when we're Christians, right? And we think that, like, that's it. But that's not it. That's not it. You know, Mother Teresa spent years and years and years of her life unable to sense God. And every day she still carried on. Every day she still went into the gutters. Every day she still prayed anyway. That's what holiness is. But there's also something really important if we want to strive for that kind of being, right? Which is really at the heart, like you can't forget the crucifixion at the heart of Catholicism or even Christianity, right? You can't forget that there's difficulty there, but there's resurrection beyond it, right? So there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. But oh, how much more beautiful and oh, how much more redemptive and oh, how much more possible to deal with these things if we are not alone. In the Eucharist, we're not alone. But the truth is, we're embodied people. And sometimes we need skin. We need real live people to be community with us. And that only works by us entering into community together, right? So some of you have community. I can see it here. You have community of a sort. I never have community enough for me because oddly, as an introvert, you'd think I didn't want to be around people a lot, but man, I just crave people a lot of times. It's just this weird thing, right? And we all have different numbers of friends and we all have different you know, family situations and those kind of things. But there is something intrinsic in us. This is what we learned from that Genesis narrative, that there's something inherent in us, that there's something basic to us that says, you know, part of imaging God, part of being created as the image and likeness of God means that I desire somebody else. I desire other people. I desire community. I want more. Why is that? 
Well, it, Catholics would say it's because God, God is a communion of persons. So there's sort of this very logical leap, right? If God is a communion of persons, and I'm created in God's image, but I am not a communion. I am just a me, right? I am just a singularity. But I have these instincts that have been instilled in me, so I want to be a communion of persons. So sometimes I have the instinct to try to find somebody just like me, and then like we'll agree on everything and we'll watch the same news channels and we'll just agree on stuff and we eat the same ice cream and we never argue and like that's community. Well, it's a kind of community. It may be a really good start, right? But if we talk about a Trinitarian God, that means that there's unity in difference when we look at God, right? Because if there wasn't unity in difference, it would just be, Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus, or Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, right? Like there wouldn't, there would be no triune God. Now we're not made like that, right? We're not made like that, but, but we're made with the same desire. We're made with these sort of instincts, right? And so that's where we get the bone of bone and flesh of flesh. That's where we get, hey, we're alike. Unfortunately, I'm twice your age at this point, but we're alike, right? But we can learn stuff from each other, and we can share things together, and I may rub you totally wrong, and vice versa, but that's okay, because holiness is in the mess. And that's really hard. We don't, we don't like that. We don't like that very much. But think about it. Have you ever challenged yourself? And if you haven't, I suggest you do. Have you ever challenged yourself to meet somebody or to join a group of people that you don't really know very well? I mean, for me, it's like, <gasps> okay, I'd rather that like a hole opens up and swallows me. But okay, just think about this. That you meet somebody and there's somebody and you, ju you just don't like them. Like you just don't. And I have to say, I have really good instincts about people, so unfortunately I tend to trust those instincts all the time. But sometimes, sometimes, we need to be able to say, okay, hold on a minute. That person's also made in God's image, and that person also has things that I can give myself as gift to and receive from the gift that they are and maybe form community. Maybe they can reach out to other people that I'd like to know, but I can't. I don't yet. And maybe I can do the same thing. And very soon, you have a group of people who probably didn't know one another a year ago, sitting and eating chips and listening to some chick from Jersey, right? And maybe exploring some possibilities about what community really means. And community is not easy, and we all know that. Even if you're the most extrovertish of extroverts, community means a lot of things. So here's, here are some of the things that community means. And we learn a little of this from the very beginning. When Adam looks at Eve, we're going to use those names even though they're not in that part of scripture, but we know who they are, right? So when Adam looks at Eve and he says, this one's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but he first says, at last one like me, but he can see that she's very different from him, right? 
And by the way, for those of you who get upset about the fact that we get like the male gaze and only men looking at women, only Adams, I do too. I got some stuff to say, not during this talk. Okay. Um, but let's just go with it for now, right? So when Adam's saying all these things, he's not saying, God, you screwed up. I wanted one like me. That's not one like me. That's one that's different from me. What is the problem? This wasn't such a hard order, was it? Right? I asked for no pickles on my side. You know, it's not, that's not what that was. Adam is ecstatic. He's, that word means I'm beside myself. He's, he's physically beside himself. He literally is now two people. This is crazy. He's ecstatic, right? And so, so he's beside himself that this person is another I, another one of me, a one who's like me, the one I've been longing for, and she's completely different from me in so many ways. So one of the things we can learn about community is look for the people who are different from me because actually they are another I. They are like me. They are human. They are a person. They are created in God's image. And I can become a better person because and more of myself, not complete, but more fully myself by being with them. So that's part of community. Number two, community should be valuable right? It should be valuable. And we learn that because we read all these verses about God saying to Adam, look, a puppy, right? And Adam's like, yeah, we're going to call him Rover. And Adam's still like, and I'm not happy. I want more. I want more, right? And so community ought to be something we long for even when we start to build it. Because it has to be part of our desire. So be willing to crawl into the painful desire of wanting other people in my life that I can be a gift to. That I can share the journey with. That's a hard call. Right? But having grown up with a lot of obstacles, I will tell you that anything worth it, anything valuable doesn't come easy, shouldn't come easy, or we don't value it, right? So yeah, difference. Yeah, longing, right? And then there's this other thing, this messy thing, this messy thing that happens when Eve is going, but, but there's this fruit. It looks yummy. And by the way, Adam, for those of you who haven't like hunkered down and really taken Genesis 2 apart and 3. Adam's right there. We always are like, oh, the snake and Eve are having this nice jolly chat and she eats this apple. There's no apple in the bottle. Okay, this apple. And then she goes over and is like, let me find Adam and make him do this thing too. No, he is standing right there. Quietly. Letting her get into the mess. So community means not doing that. It means owning your own voice. It means saying the truth in love. It means hearing the truth in love. This is hard. Man, I'm telling you all these hard things. You know most of these things. I'm reminding us of most of these things, yeah? 
but here's the thing. I'm going to bring it right to 2019. My experience is that, especially when we're young and we have a thousand possibilities in our lives, um, and I'm not young, but I still have possibilities in my life, um, it can be very tempting to wait for the next better thing. It can be very tempting to say, uh, yeah, maybe I'll go to your party. I'll just get back to you. And then somebody comes along with the next better thing. And so we just don't. Or hope you move. Yeah, just give me a call closer to the day. And then, you know, just randomly my phone was not being charged, you know. So there's this thing called commitment. And the hard part about community and commitment is that I commit alone to a group of people. And that's part of that same story from the garden. I have authority over my own life. I have responsibility for the things and people around me. And I have free will to choose. But unless I take those things seriously and as an as a individual person, as a singularity, I commit to these different people around me and really show up. Even when I'm tired, even when I've been, you know, up doing whatever till 3 a.m., whatever it is, I'm not going to get community. Not really. I might have a great group of people, and I might in six months, like, never see them again. And again, we know when we're young and mobile, that happens all the time, right? That happens in the university life where I am. You know, I meet these great students, and then I never see them again. Or I have great colleagues who move on to a bigger, better job. That happens very frequently, and it's a very hard thing, right? Because I've committed myself to them in some way. But because I have authority, because I have a vision of what it means to have community, because I'm made in the image and likeness of the one who is a communion of persons, I also have hope. I also have hope. And my hope is sustained in prayer. And my hope is sustained in the Eucharist. And my hope is sustained in this thing we call the communion of saints. Where all those who have died before us and gone on to eternal life in heaven are with us and praying for us and battling for us and, and somehow know us. Which is kind of crazy, but amazing. Right? Joan of Arc, who lived, you know, a century ago, is available to me to say, hey, Joan of Arc, could you just, like, cover us in prayer a little bit? Because we're here tonight, and it's raining, and some of us are tired. Some of us had a really crap day, and we don't want to be here. But I, the Holy Spirit wants to move. And she's like, got your back, right? So when we're talking about community, let's not be frustrated by it or flippant about it. Let's, let's approach community as people who have hope. Because that longing is not instilled in us by a God who is a tyrant who just wants to be like, yeah, I'm going to make them really want this stuff and just never give it to them. I mean, I don't know. A God, I, God's not like that, right? God's going to say, I got your back too. I want this for you, too. I have put this desire on your heart. Now, is uh, you know, Anselm right? Are we always going to be restless until we rest in God? Yeah. But restlessness is okay. Let's be restless together. Yeah? 
And wouldn't it be great if every time we had to face that, like, nasty dragon from the video game in real life, for whatever those dragons are, we could move as a group. Because, man, we may not fight as well, but we're going to win better. I think I'm going to end there. I want us to think about what it means to be community for me. Where are my frustrations? Where did I tag out? What hope do I have? What can we do that's practical? What does it mean that I'm made in the image of a communion of persons? That's kind of crazy. There's your heavy theology for the night, right? But don't walk away from this hopeless. All right, good. Thank you. I'm just going to give a stab. Some of these actually require like an entire semester course to answer well, um, which is just speaks of your brilliance and your desire, and that's so great. I am going to give you the good parts version. All right, so um, I'm going to start with the most important question first, which is North or South Jersey? Uh. <laughs> Which I just answered in full, but central Jersey. So I'm from Hillsborough. Well, I live in Hillsborough. I live here. I have a house in Hillsborough, New Jersey, which is next to Princeton, which is like that central band of New Jersey. But I'm actually from Bergen County, which means that as a kid, I rode my bicycle down the street into New York. So North Jersey, I call it Taylor Ham, but I live in the middle of Jersey. Okay, great. Now let's get on to the more profound questions. Well, that was a good one. Um, I'm going to read the question, probably answer yes or no, and then maybe give a little two minutes. When the man went to sleep as one and woke up as two, how did only one of them give the recognition speech, bone of my bone, etc.? How come not both in stereo? And did John Paul II have thoughts on this? And yes, he did. Okay, so... Um, it's a really good question, and my brain does not work this way, so kudos to whoever's brain works this way. They woke up, uh, so, um, Greg, I'm going to pick on you. Could you stand up? How many people are you? Yeah. What, what, does everyone agree Greg is one singular, singularity of a person? Yeah, um, could I just have another volunteer who's willing to stand up somewhere in the room? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead, you stand up. Thank you. Well, I don't know what your name is. Okay. Can you tell me how many people you are? Okay. Two people. They did not speak in stereo. They're complete people. Do either of you require somebody else to speak while you speak in order to make you be one person? Are you a complete and full person? Are you 100% a person? Are you a subject? Can you claim authority and responsibility for your actions? Can you blame someone else for your actions? You can try. 
<laughs> All right, you guys can sit down. Thank you for being good sports. So here's the thing. It's very, very important to understand that when the one wakes up as two persons, they are two complete persons. And the way John Paul II would say this is, the man is created as a person for his own sake. And here's the brilliance of this, because somehow, as Catholics, we sometimes borrow from other folks who aren't necessarily speaking the truth. So listen to this one. The woman is created as a person for her own sake. Period. Quotation marks. These are two people created as a person. And when John Paul II uses the word person, this is what he means. He means an ensouled body created in the image and likeness of God out of God's gratuitous love for that person. Period. Now, if you really want to get into marriage theology and all this stuff, you can start having real fun with the one became two and the two become one. Yeah? But that's not what we're talking about. In the creation of Adam and Eve, Eve is not part of Adam. Right? She is a person created for her own sake. And this is very important to get this distinction or we end up objectifying women, which is part of what comes with the fall. Woman is a subject in exactly the same measure as man. And when John Paul II talks about, it's usually translated in English as man, the collective, it's always man dash male and female. Always. Always. We would do well to remember that when we see things that are in translation that are predominantly using only male um, adjectives and other words because often if we go back to the original Latin it is using collective the collective nouns right so it's using homo which is male or female as opposed to veer which is male these kind of things so it's really important our translation is really sucky anyone who wants to talk to me about that will have to have coffee all right um, we heard a talk a few months ago about how Jesus taught the apostles how to bring forth, forward his message, perform miracles, etc. Do any examples jump out to you of ways that Jesus taught the apostles to do battle as community? So um, this is a really great. Uh, this is a really great question. Jesus, for the most part, is encouraging peace. Right? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Those kinds of things. Right? But at the same time. I would suggest that, first of all, he teaches us how to pray by turning to God the Father and by claiming the Father's protection. And so that's part of doing battle is being able to pray with one another, particularly in the words that Christ gives us. Um, also, when he, I would suggest, again, um, this isn't strictly biblical, right? This is Bible and tradition, um, that when he institutes the priesthood at the Last Supper, that that is preparing these folks in a sense, to do battle. But more than that, we see it in when Luke writes, sorry, Book of Acts, and when we get to Paul, right? So we see this sort of fleshed out in the early church and the tradition of the early church because you can't tell me that Pentecost is not a community doing battle. 
You can't tell me that Pentecost isn't a community of men and women who are so filled with the Holy Spirit that they no longer cower in fear. That is what a community doing battle together ultimately looks like. It is the Holy Spirit breathing through the community. So that is my, that is my example. I'm sure other people could give you better ones. Those are the ones that come to mind. This is really good. I'm, I'm, I am sort of, um, I'm challenging us with language between the, I understand bone of my bones is descriptive of like sort of material similarity, but I'm claiming, and so is John Paul too, that flesh of my flesh indicates difference and just sounds like more similarity. So I'll explain it in a super, super simple way. Um, uh, I don't want to, I don't know us all, so I don't want to scandalize or shock us, but let's try this. Think of Renaissance art. Think of Renaissance art and think of a picture of, uh, the, think of like Michelangelo, um, think of the Sistine Chapel and think of, um, Adam and Eve who are naked in that, uh, in that depiction, right? And you can tell they're both human because, they have the same bone structure. They have a head on top that only looks this way. It can't turn around like an owl. They have two legs that they stand on, right? They have arms that come to about here. They have navels, right? That has to do with, like, blah, 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 right? So the bones are the same. The structure is the same. Think of the same picture and tell me that their flesh does not look different. Their flesh is actually formed very differently, right? And, I mean fine specifically genitals breasts these kind of things right but there, there's something physically different so we're just if we just rely on bodies if we're just talking about bodies and about sameness and difference we can say that human persons are all different from one another sure but we expect 206 bones right but there are there are um protrusions of flesh that we expect to be different in different people as part of the natural biological difference. But also, you know, men's brains are bigger than women's brains. Do we know this? But it's mostly gray matter, and women's brains have way more white matter, which is the connective tissue, which means that women's brains do this, and everything can kind of be connected. We're better at language and things. And men's brains generally are really big, but they don't use a lot of them. No offense, right? This is biology. This is like hashtag science and all that stuff. But no, really, um, there there are differences, right? And so we would say, you know, structurally, sure, um, but there are differences in the way that we're made up. And my emphasis really here is that difference isn't bad, right? So we're not like, oh, you're different, so you shouldn't open the door for me or carry something heavy because, like, you're a girl. Believe me, that is the last thing that I'm saying, right? Um, difference does not mean that only... Uh, you know, men should be president and women should be secretaries. Like, that's, that's, that's all cultural. That's all social cultural stuff, right? That's not, that's not the story of Genesis, which says we're the same and we're different, and this is what makes creation of humanity a good, right? So that's, uh, hopefully that's satisfactory, and if it's not, I'm really sorry. Could you say more about how to give your all to communities that expire? So, for exa um, example, um, students like who are leaving, like if you're in a you know a campus kind of community, neighborhoods that change, those kind of things. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard when you've given your all to a community that you don't realize is expiring or changing. 
So it's a lesson that is really well learned. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to say a couple of things. I want to say all of our communities will expire. As a, as a mentor of mine has said, the one thing that science cannot cure is death. All of our communities are icons to something longer, greater, and more eternal. And so I would hate to have it said, and this is part of my personality, and I know we're all different, but I would hate to have it said, oh, well, she knew she was only going to be here for six years, and so she didn't teach as well as she could have. Or she didn't meet so-and-so for coffee, because why invest in him? Because she's going to go back to Jersey, right? Or I'm in this neighborhood and I'm probably, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm single, but I'm dating someone and maybe I'll get married and maybe we'll go have a house and 20 children because we're Catholic, whatever, right? Um, that was a joke. So, uh, you know, I, and so I know I'm not going to be here forever. This is a one-bedroom house and I've got my four cats and we're already full up, right? So, but I'm not called, I'm not called as a Christian to give, um, part of me. And actually, this is why we end up with all kinds of things that are hard for us in our sexual ethics, because we keep thinking we can just give part of ourselves to each other. And, and it doesn't work, right? There's problems with that. So I don't know. I mean, Jesus was only with his apostles for three years. I would, I would venture to say he gave everything. And that's our model. Right? Christ is our model. So whether it's three years or three months or 20 years, I have friends from when I was eight. You know how long that is? That's, I'm not going to tell you how long that is. That's a long time. And I just celebrated my friend's daughter's college graduation. Yeah, okay. So, but but I'm also here with you guys, and I get to meet you, and I, you know, maybe I didn't give you my all tonight, but I tried. And that's why I'm called to do every single time that I get to encounter the image of God, is to be a gift. And so that is my answer to that, and I can't give you practical ways. I can just challenge the heck out of you. You're here for a year. You give 100%. You know Why? Because you are a gift and because the people around you deserve your 100% because they are God's image and likeness. Yeah? Amen? All right. Maybe we could end with a prayer. <sighs> Thank you, Lord, for your great gift to us. Thank you for showing us as a community of persons what it means to be gift to one another, to pour ourselves out, and to willingly receive your gift and other people through their gift of self. We ask you that you would teach us more about what union and communion means so that we could see through one another as icons that great glory that awaits us in heaven when we are finally united and one in you. We ask that you continue to bless our conversations, our thoughts, and all of our perseverance through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.